We're uh, in a series on the early parts of 1 Samuel, so if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 3, or digitally navigate there. If you need a Bible, uh, just toss your hand up and we will bring you one. Samuel is toward the beginning of the Old Testament. No, it's no sin to look at the table of contents. No one's going to judge you for that. It's what it's there for. And actually, I'm going to, to start in the first one just a little bit. I'm going to continue into chapter 4 just a little bit. Beginning about halfway through verse 1 of chapter 3. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord, and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he said to you? Or what was it they told he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything, hid nothing from him. And he said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. There's a saying we have, um, ignorance is bliss. The idea of this saying is that we endure a great deal of mental stress and anguish simply by knowing about this or that. 
when we're unaware of the problem, we're not under any compulsion to solve the problem. Suppose, suppose you owned a house and we're having some leakage. And, and when you brought in an inspector to determine the cause of the leaking, he recognized that one of the support beams of your house was compromised. In fact, the leak is the least of your worries because the house is in danger of caving in on itself. Now, in truth, the beam had been compromised for years, slowly deteriorating, and, and more and more so over time. For months or year, the years, though, you had been blissfully unaware of this fact. One day you're happy and enjoying your beautiful home, and the next day you're looking at a five-figure repair bill and the risk of imminent collapse. Not knowing was better than knowing, at least in the way it felt. But, of course, that little scenario reveals why our saying is a lie. After all, discovering your house might come down surely causes you great stress and great anguish and frustration, but it also could potentially save your life. The truth is, many of us have things we'd rather not know. We delay looking into things. Perhaps we delay going to the doctor or calling in a professional, looking at our credit card bill. Things we know we should do, but sometimes we feel like life would just be a little easier if we didn't. But in the long run, life is rarely easier because of our ignorance. In this passage this morning, we're going to look at at a moment in the life of Israel in which there was great ignorance. And while it might have seemed blissful in the moment, it most decidedly wasn't bliss in the big picture. But that's how our passage begins. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. The word vision here refers to prophetic vision. Sometimes, I'm going to move these back because I can't see the people over on the right here. Sometimes uh, Christians take all these verses about vision and no vision and they turn them into some sort of self-help nonsense. You've probably heard people quote, where there is no vision, the people perish. Then they go on to tell you that strong leaders have great vision and sigh. Um, It's prophetic vision, where there is no revelation of the word of God, the people perish. The word of God makes us alive, and without the word of God, we wither. And that's exactly what's going on in Israel at this time. They were not hearing much from God. We've spoken extensively about how during this period, the period of the judges' moral decay was was rotting away at the fibers of Israelite society so that even the so-called leaders were pretty perverse. And and we saw a bit of that last week in chapter 2 with Eli's sons, the sons of the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, who were stealing from the people. They were stealing from God. They were were turning the temple or tabernacle worship into a, a sex cult. And so the people were perishing. They were ignorant of God's moral demands. And so they blissfully did as they pleased. Now, to be more accurate, no one is ever fully ignorant of God's moral demands. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 1 and and even Romans chapter 2. We're creating God's image. And so we have a, a, a mark of God stamped on us, but we're also placed in a created universe that is entirely designed to glorify that God. And we miss this, Paul says, only because we suppress it. It's like when you don't want to deal with the world, and so you throw on your headphones or you 
power up your Xbox? Are you hitting Netflix and just coast for a while? Paul says we choose to spiritually distract ourselves to keep us from acknowledging the reality that's right before us. But God in his goodness sends preachers. God sends his word out into a dying and distracted world to shake it out of its stupor, to get it to pay attention. And when the word of God is rare, that is decidedly a bad thing because it means God was generally not inclined to woo the people back to repentance. He had, to a significant degree, turned his back on them. So while the people were not entirely without a witness to God, they were able to ignore him to such a degree that they were effectively, blissfully ignorant. But as we've seen, ignorance is never truly blissful. The passage says that Samuel was sleeping in the temple, meaning the tabernacle, the portable temple that Israel had before they built the fixed thing in Jerusalem. He's not in the most holy place where only Eli, the high priest, would be allowed to go, but the room just outside that where the lampstands are kept. And the lamps had to be kept burning all night long. And that was the job of a Levite, which we've seen Samuel was a Levite, so it makes sense that he's sleeping there, probably rising every so often to ensure that there's enough oil in the lamps that they keep going all night long. Eli's in his own place, which is not very specific, but it might refer to his home in Cleveland. We might say that Eli was where he stay. But uh, maybe he had a place at the tabernacle. Maybe he had a home nearby. But it had to be within earshot or the rest of this story doesn't make sense. Twice in the night, Samuel wakens to hear a voice calling to him. And, and, and thinking it's Eli, he dutifully runs to his father and or substitute father, really, is substitute father and master, ready for instruction. And twice Eli tells him, go back to bed, because he had not called. And at this point, the writer explains, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. We don't know how old Samuel was. The, the term for him, a young man, could be nearly anything from a child to a young adult, uh, probably unmarried. Jewish tradition pegged him at 12, but we don't know that. What we do know is that at this point, he did not know Yahweh, the Lord. The phrase isn't super common in the Old Testament. I, I did some digging. I would have thought this would have popped up all over the Old Testament. and it's, it's not as common as I thought, but it is the third time that it's appeared in this book already. And as far as I can tell, in every place it's used, the phrase means a person who on, on one end is cognizant of Yahweh, he's heard of him, he knows him, he knows who he is, and the person has familiarity with Yahweh. Yahweh is not that strange deity over there, but Yahweh is my God. He is the one I worship. He alone is God. In other words, to know Yahweh was to be a converted worshiper. And to not know Yahweh is to be an unconverted individual. So here is Samuel ministering in the very sanctuary of God, and he doesn't know God. He's a Jew by birth, but he's not a Jew by faith. He has heard of Yahweh, but he doesn't know Yahweh. 
In this way, Samuel is identical to Eli's two biological sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who in chapter 2 we read, did not know the Lord. But the difference here is that little word, yet. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And so we have an immediate contrast with those wicked sons as we're led to expect something radical is about to change. The text also says the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him, which is to say we should note that the, the knowledge of God comes from God. The reason Samuel doesn't know God is precisely because Yahweh has not revealed himself to Samuel yet. The revelation of God precedes the reception of God. But the third time God speaks to Samuel and Samuel goes to Eli, Eli gets a clue and tells Samuel it it might be Yahweh. It might be the Lord. And perhaps that's the saddest part of the story, though, because after chapter 2, we're, we're, we're sort of prepared for it, I guess. But the high priest of Israel does not recognize that the God of Israel might be speaking until after three promptings. He instructs Samuel that if it happens again, he should stay where he is, address the voice of the servant, and listen for an answer. Now, earlier in the chapter, we read something about Eli. He's going blind. It says his eyes were growing dim. And that seems to be more than just a token detail about a historical figure. It's a symbol of his ministry and his leadership, as well as the state of Israel as a whole. He was no longer very perceptive, either physically nor spiritually. But he wasn't blind. There's a danger as we grow older for our senses to become less acute. A lot of you in this room don't have any idea that this is possible, and I can tell you it's, it's starting to become possible for me. Um, I'm not 40 yet, and with any luck, I won't be. Um, but as we age, our senses become less acute, and, and not only do they become less acute in the physical realm, but they do in the spiritual realm as well. We, we can grow lax in our pursuit of God over the years. And so we no longer see him as clearly as we once did. Younger people, we, we oftentimes think of young people being on fire for God. And there's a, there's a truth to that. You know, they, they sometimes don't see the big picture. But what they do see, they see really clearly. And sometimes as we get older, we start to lose that. We become tolerant of all sorts of sin and evil, especially the socially acceptable ones. We have more of a psychological desire to just get along in society as we get older. And and that seems to have happened as well with Eli. But he's not blind yet. He's not so far gone as to be without hope. And his lesson for Samuel is a sound one. And the proper response of God's people to God's voice is exactly what Samuel says. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak because we want desperately to hear God's voice. Lord, because we recognize him for who he is, Yahweh, the existing one, God of gods, Lord of lords. He has a name. He's not just any deity out there. He can't be confused with Allah. 
can't be confused with the generic American deity in God we trust. He has a name, and there's only one. Your servant, because we place ourselves humbly and submissively in his hand, hears, not because we have good ears, but because the idea of hearing was so closely connected to obedience in Hebrew thought, So we say here because we stand ready to do as he desires. So that's our our posture. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. When God is speaking, and and he generally speaks to us in his prophetically revealed word, the Bible. Let our prayer be, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. These would be great words to, stay, to, to pray at the beginning of opening your Bible in the morning or in the evening whenever you do it. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel does this, and, and God gives him a prophetic message. He's going to destroy the house of Eli. Now, what we have here in some ways matches what the anonymous prophet told Eli in chapter 2, if you were here last week. It's an off week. Everyone was out of town, so maybe you didn't. But it'll be on, online. Sometimes, though, God's announcements of judgment in the Old Testament were more intended to be heard as warnings. In other words, when the anonymous prophet came to Eli in chapter 2, it's possible that we should take that as a stern warning for Eli as, hey, this is what's about to happen if you don't change. That there was time was running out, but there was still a way out. It's also possible that God is reiterating the prophecy simply to drive it home to Eli that this is unwavering, it's unchangeable, and there's nothing you can do about it. But whatever the case, it is now the situation that what has been told to Samuel is about to happen. That's what the text says. It's about to happen. And whether the previous prophecy was a warning shot, and this is just the final notice, or whether the message is a reiteration for effect, it's going down. And that is, in effect, Samuel's conversion. Yahweh has revealed his word to Samuel, and now Samuel knows Yahweh. And now that he knows God, Samuel is tasked with delivering this message of doom to the man who had essentially raised him, whose care he's under. And that leads to another point worth bringing up. Knowing God is linked with God's word being revealed to a person. God's self-revelation, the message about God. Supremely, we who are Christians know this word, this message to be the gospel. God must reveal the good news That though we have gone our own way like the Israelites before us and followed what we felt was right in our own eyes, he made a way for our sins to be atoned for. That is, he made a way for our sins to be paid for so that we could go free and we could escape his judgment. That way was made in, in Jesus Christ who died in the place of sinners on the cross, who rose to new life so that forgiveness can be had by those who repent in faith. 
but knowledge of God's word when God has revealed himself to us. Knowledge of God's word entails a responsibility to proclaim God's word. Converting to the worship of Yahweh doesn't mean that one can now just do a few nice sacrifices, enjoy some nice holiday meals with a little bit more meaning, and generally have warm, fuzzy sense of peace. Throughout the Old Testament, not to mention the New, true faith is reflected in a human response to God's divine action. True faith means doing something. And that very often meant saying something. Christian, if you are a Christian, and you've come to a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, you are not merely cognizant of him, but you're familiar with him. Not merely knowledgeable about him, but you're entrusting relationship with him then it's because the gospel word has been revealed to you. And as a result, you are responsible to share that gospel word. And that might be hard. I can almost guarantee you at times it will be hard. It might mean telling the man who raised you that he is on a path of destruction. How about that for a first message you have to deliver? Samuel, appreciably, is nervous to tell Eli this message. But Eli insists on learning what God has spoken. So Samuel puts faith into action and he speaks the word of God. And Eli's response is important for us to grasp. He says, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. Despite all of his imperfections, despite all of his failures as a leader and his many, many sins, there is a mark of faithfulness in Eli that is admirable. And one of the final recorded acts of his life, he surrenders entirely to the will of God. There are many of us here, I imagine, that if you've been reading with us and you've read Samuel 1 through 3, you fancy yourself much more spiritual than Eli. I don't blame you. He's not exactly a role model. But I imagine there are many of us who fancy ourselves more spiritual than Eli who would never dare to respond with such deference and humility to the revealed will of God. Like Eli, we serve in the presence of God. But when we receive hard news about what God would have for us, we reject it. We dismiss it. And we spit it out like a bitter pill. Eli's response has two dimensions that are important that we, we get. Recognition. It's, it's, it is the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's the one and only. And resignation. Let him do what seems good to him. We are most at peace when we recognize God's hand and are resigned to what he deems is good. Because what he deems is good is good. Even if it's bitter in a moment. The story concludes with a beautiful epilogue. It begins with, with these words here. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. 
Before, the text had often said things like Samuel had been ministering in the presence of the Lord, quite literally because he was ministering in the tabernacle. But now Yahweh was with him. When this idea is used in the Bible, it represents strength and blessing on one's life and ministry. It's used of Israel as a whole when Balaam, the false prophet, was unable to bring a curse down on them in the book of Numbers. It's used of Isaac when the Canaanites are surrounding him. It's used of David later in this book in the face of King Saul who would like to destroy him. In fact, as I was digging around the Old Testament, I was surprised by something. I was surprised how often the idea of the Lord being with someone, or not being with someone as the case might be, is used in the context of a threat or a potential threat of unbelievers towards God's people. Where God's being with that person allowed them to survive and prosper in the face of that threat. And so in that sense, it's not just a little positive note here that the Lord was with Samuel. Oh, that's nice. That's good. Good. He's, he's with Jesus. But it's a reminder. It's, more, it's a reminder that given the desperate spiritual state of Israel, the tremendous amount of unfaithfulness and perversion that was around him, Samuel needed God to be with him if he was going to make it. And so God was with him. None of his words fall to the ground. Samuel has become a prophet. He is receiving messages from God and revealing them to others. And not a single one failed to come out exactly the way he said it would be, which is the mark of a true prophet. It's the mark of a true prophet. God is with him and none of his words fall to the ground. In fact, um, the Bible has a term for some, a prophet who gives a message that doesn't turn out to be accurate. They're called a false prophet. And things you're supposed to do with them in Israel was stone them because they're leading God's people astray. It's a mark of a true prophet. Their, their words are faithful. And as for the results of that, he was known. From north to south, Dan to Beersheba, Israel heard that there was a prophet of Yahweh again. God continues to reveal himself to Samuel at Shiloh. And that message resonated to all Israel. So we've seen some little tidbits, little bits and pieces along the way. But what's the the big picture here in the story? What does the story as a whole point us to? Remember, this episode began with the word of God being rare. During one of the darkest times in Israel's history. The symbolism of the chapter couldn't be more on the nose. The the high priest's eyes have gone dim. um, And even when God first reveals himself to Samuel, what time is it? It, it, It's time that the lamp that burned all night in the presence of Yahweh had not yet gone out. On one hand, that simply meant dawn was near, was getting close to burning out. On the other hand, it's not hard to see that just as the light was about to go out in the tabernacle, so the light of God's truth was nearly extinguished among Israel. But, says the Lord, revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. 
And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Brothers and sisters, whatever the devil may do in this dark world, the light of God's word will never be extinguished. The light of God's word will never be extinguished. It cannot be snuffed out. The devil will try, even as he he tried to snuff it out and lure all Israel into idolatry, but it couldn't happen. In the midst of that darkness, God raised up a new hope and God brought his word into the world through Samuel. I, I prayed earlier, one of my, my best friends from college is uh, a missionary in a closed country. I received word from him in the mail last week that he was effectively out of the country because the government had gotten wise to some missionary activity and it wasn't safe to be there anymore. And I reached out to him. I'd been meaning to reach out to him to see if I'd get him to, to preach in the spring here. And actually, by God's providence, he had already... He had left the country to work on a visa issue when all of this had started to come down. And uh, he returned for, I, I think he said a day when word got to him that he had to get out of the country now. If he wanted any hope of getting back and staying there for the long term, he had to leave now. I've been meaning to reach out to him about preaching here in the spring, like I said, and, and, and he's, he's stateside now. He doesn't know when he can get back. He has friends, uh, ministry colleagues, um, uh, people on the ground that he has preached the gospel to who have been arrested, uh, people who have gone missing. And the devil can do what he wants through that government and through those people. But I was looking at this passage last night and I messaged him and I said, man, First Samuel 3, brother, I said, like, be encouraged because God's word is not going to be snuffed out over there. It will not be snuffed out and it will go forth and it will shine and it will win because God's word does. We look at at John chapter 1. In the beginning was what? Was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. And it never will. Brothers and sisters, I know that we, we sometimes wonder whether God's word has any effect. We, we wonder whether uh, God even desires for his word to go forth because, because we see it, we preach it, and, and it seems like it falls on dry soil. But I promise you, God will not let his word be snuffed out. He promises in Isaiah, my word will not return to me void. In other words, it accomplishes exactly what he sets out for his word to do. And it will not be silenced. 
The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, it's been said, because every time, every time Satan has tried to kill God's people, to snuff out God's word, the light has only grown paradoxically brighter and churches have been born and churches have multiplied. We witnessed recently perhaps a foolish excursion of John Allen Chow to North Sentinelese, uh, the North Sentinel Island. A lot has been written in the, in the public sphere, a lot of confusion in the public sphere, even the secular sphere, about what do you do with a people group? If you're not familiar with the story, there's a people that basically had no contact with anyone on this remote island in the Indian Ocean. Because every time people try to make contact with them, they, they have a tendency to shoot at them with bows and arrows and, and kill them. And uh, is that good? You know, is it good? We, we used to take for granted that if we could help people, even from a secular standpoint, if we could help people, we could make their lives better. We ought to do that. And now we wrestle with that idea. For Christians, we know that it's always a bad thing for people to die in their sins. And so we have a holy motivation to preach the gospel in dark places. And John Allen Chow apparently had such a motivation and would that we all had his passion to see the gospel proclaimed in dark places and the courage to sacrifice his life. Strategy? Probably foolish. He didn't go as a team. He didn't go with a, a send, at least clearly didn't go with the backing of a sending organization or a sending church so that even if something could happen to him, uh, as it did, there's, there's no one at the ready to, to go back in under his foot, you know, past his footsteps and, 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 and try again. There's, there's no chain, you know, uh, where you destroy one link and, and the next is, is there. So foolish. I think we can, we can admire his courage and we can admire his dedication to the gospel, even while calling it foolish. But here's the thing. Whether, whether his methods were good or bad, and we can debate that, but I guarantee you, God's word will not be extinguished on North Sentinel Island. Every tribe and every tongue and every language will hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Whether they accept that or whether they reject it, but God's word will not be snuffed out in this world. So, brothers and sisters, we don't face anything. Our, our culture is not North Sentinel Island. Our, our culture is not many, many places in East Asia. Our culture is not the Middle East. Our culture is not uh, Northeast Africa. It is not Russia. Um, it could be a lot worse places to preach the gospel. But there are times there are certainly times when we understand that this message seems to be a dim light. But God will not let it go out. We can have the confidence 
And we can have the courage that if God has revealed his word to us and he has revealed his word to us in the gospel, that he is with us, which gives us the strength and the courage to know that we will prosper spiritually and being bold to proclaim the word of God in hard places, in dark places, in places of dry, rocky soil that is unresponsive to Christ's love. But even still, it won't go out. Let's pray. Thank you for your promise, God. Thank you for your promise that your word will not be snuffed out, that the, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, will not prevail against your people who are called by your name for your purposes. You are with us and we trust in that. You have bought us by the blood of your son. You've revealed yourself to us by the word of your gospel. Even as we stand prepared to, to remember and celebrate that gospel in the partaking of the supper of our Lord this morning. We recognize that we've been too often silent and we've been too often cowards. Too often fearful too often not convinced that you are indeed with us and that you will make your glory known. That the oil in this lamp will not burn out. So brighten our flames, God, and forgive us for the ways that we have denied you. Forgive us for the ways that we have feared to tell the ones we love, tell the ones we care about, to tell our friends, to tell our co-workers, to tell our neighbors, to tell our families, to tell strangers. The message of hope revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgive us for the ways that we have feared man more than we have feared God. Forgive us, Father, for the ways in which we have let our own sins and our own weaknesses cloud our judgment and cloud our hearts. Forgive us for the times that we have told ourselves that we are unworthy and so we have kept our mouths shut. Listening to the accusations of the accuser rather than recognizing that yes, indeed we are unworthy and that's the point. Jesus was worthy. He is enough. And in him we can be so bold. Make us into a people that shines like a city on a hill from this little outpost in Cleveland with all the confidence that you are with us, with all the confidence that it can't be snuffed out, all the confidence that it cannot be extinguished. May you turn the hearts of this people here in Cleveland 
back to their creator through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you're able, stand to sing.